Okay, this month we're looking at what biblical quitting looks like. When we finally say no more, I'm going to stop pretending and I'm going to allow God by his Holy Spirit to transform my life. So what does it mean to quit those things that are damaging to our very life and to our very soul? When we quit the fear of what other people think, then we choose freedom. When we quit lies, then we choose truth. When we quit blaming others, we choose responsibility. When we quit faulty thinking, we choose to live in reality. And all of these thoughts come back to a, a book that I, uh, that's called I Quit and which we're using as the basis for this sermon series. So let's review. Last week I had some good news and I had some bad news for you. The good news was that some of you will take into your very being what God's word says and experience a life transforming power, experience the life transforming power of the very rhema of God. The bad news was that there will be some that will find any sort of excuse. Excuses why not to apply the teaching of God's word to your life. And for some, you'll have a whole list of excuses why. But the challenge from God's word was to quit making excuses. We all have good intentions rather than God intentions. Me-centric rather than God-centric. The fact is our earthly excuses will discount the eternal power of God. Let me say that again. Our earthly excuses will discount the eternal power of God. So a God-centric believer says, God, I will do what I can do and I will trust you to do what I cannot do and I will quit making excuses. Let's set up this week's message. How many of you know somebody who seems to complain all the time? Put your hand up. If you know somebody who is a big complainer, raise up your hand. How many of you are that person? No pointing, all right? If you are that person, I'm going to give you something to complain about by the end of this sermon, okay? By the time I'm finished, you'll be complaining. Some people complain about everything, don't they? They complain about everything. The weather's not right, it's too cold, it's too hot, the music's too loud, the service at the supermarket checkout is too slow, and on and on it goes. For some people, they are so good at complaining, it's like they're spiritually gifted with it, isn't it? <laughs> and they excel at complaining. I Facebooked on my status last week, and I said, what are you tempted to complain about? And I got some good replies, my weight, my health, the fact that I have to work. And I got some good, uh, good comments back privately, of which I'll keep anonymous. But the, one, the, the great one was that people, there was a big complaint about people who put toilet paper on the holder the, the wrong way round. <laughs> put it up, Michaela. Go on, keep going, keep going, keep going. 
No, it's not there. Okay. I had a picture and it said the right way, the wrong way, and then someone just left the roll on top of the holder and it says, you monster. <laughs> it's probably there hidden back in the background or something like that. But anyway, people who put the toilet paper on the wrong way and, 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 uh, some, and someone, and I just say, get a life. doesn't matter, you know. The price of gas, I complained about the price of gas yesterday. It went up from a buck ninety-five at Sheets for the gas I get to $2.60. I couldn't believe it. So the price of utilities, the price of groceries, the amount of traffic that's on the freeways, bad drivers, potholes, roadworks. I know you guys complain about roadworks all the time. Yeah? It's, it's, a, it's, it's an Akron thing, isn't it? Yeah. Not enough money, not enough time. And the last complaint I got on, face, on the Facebook status in regards to what has tempted you to, uh, what, 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 what are you tempted to complain about was I want to complain about people who bellyache on Facebook. <laughs> so you might say a lot of people complain, everybody does it, so what's the big deal? If you look at scripture, you can see example after example of complaining. All the way back to the very first book of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, when Eve tempted Adam to sin after she sinned, then God comes along and, 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 and gets an earful as Adam starts complaining. This woman that you put here with me, it's her fault. So in the very first story of the Bible, there's complaining. In the book of Job, Job had a lot to complain about with all that went on and went through his life. And he did what many of us do. He, in chapter 10, verse 1, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and seek out in the bitterness and speak out, sorry, in the bitterness of my soul. If there is one group that is known for complaining more than any other, it has to be the Israelites in the Old Testament. And if you know their story, it's an interesting one. They were slaves in bondage to the Egyptians and the Israelites had one prayer and that was, God, get us out of Egypt. And God raised up a leader called Moses and God did 10 miraculous plagues and changed the heart of Pharaoh. The scripture says that Pharaoh let them go and three million Israelites walked out in a mass exodus. But Pharaoh changed his mind and sent an army to pursue them. And the Bible tells us that they were surrounded by a sea on one side and they were surrounded by a mountain range on the other. And Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them. So what did God do? God parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry ground and the army follows and God closes the sea and washes them away. The Israelites are now free and so God feeds them miraculously and he pulls water out of a rock when they're thirsty and for 40 years the Bible tells us that their clothes never wore out and so what do they do? They complain because they don't like the food and they say we wish we had have died back in bondage look at it exodus chapter 16 verses 2 to 3 in the desert the whole community grumbled against moses and aaron the israelites said to them 
If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all food, all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And as you read on in the story, they continue to complain. We're going to die here, they say. I wish we could have died back in Egypt. They are, they're going to steal our children. They're going to take our wives. This is going to be the worst thing ever. Here's my point. After a long-winded introduction that I just gave, if you want to be a chaos-thinking, conflict-ridden person, if you want to hurt the heart of God, if you want to drive other people away, if you want to hurt yourself, then do what most people do and keep on complaining. Rationalise it, excuse it away, just say everyone else is doing it, say they're not doing what I want them to do, they're not doing what I think they should do, or if you want to have a life that truly honours God in a significant way, Do what I'm doing and what I'm repenting of. And that is, I quit complaining. Let me unpack for you why complaining is so dangerous. Why it is a serious sin in the eyes of God. We're going to look at two principles from the Old Testament under the title of the cost of complaining. We will look at the Israelites and the story of Moses. The first thought is we need to understand, and this is what we need to understand, that complaining offends the heart of God. Let me use this example and put it into some kind of word picture for you. Those of you that have children, whether they're big children or small children, if you have ever done a lot for one of your children and they've just bellyached about it, even though you have blessed them in so many ways and their action is, well, I'm just so bored or I've got nothing to do or my life sucks. And with all the love that you can muster in the Lord, you still want to say, you ungrateful little brat. And so I imagine that's how God feels when we complain. Numbers 11, uh, verses 1 to 2 says, Now the people complained about the hardship in the hearing of the Lord. And And so when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burnt among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. Now, If you ever come home and you pull up in your driveway and parts of your front yard and backyard are scorched and burnt, it's possible that you've been complaining far too much. In all seriousness, the principle is very clear. That is, complaining offends the heart of God. There is an example of this as Moses is moaning and bellyaching to God about people complaining. Moses says, God, they're complaining to me. And God says, actually, you're wrong. They may be complaining to you, but they're complaining about me. God takes our complaints personally. Our complaints offend the heart of God. Second thought, complaining carries significant consequences. A very practical application before we look at the spiritual consequence is that if you want to drive people away from you, then just complain and bellyache all the time. Complaining, one man said, is like spiritual bad breath. 
Notice, you notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth, but not your own. It's true, isn't it? A little unpleasant, but Will Bowden makes a good point that complainers have spiritual bad breath. So what do you do when someone has bad breath? You kind of step back first, don't you? Right? Okay. And if you're really bold, then you'll offer them a Tic Tac or a piece of gum, won't you? So when people complain all the time, it's the same thing. People will take a step back. Complaining and bellyaching drives people away. And, and it will also hurt you, which we will see just in a moment in time. But it will also hurt you. But first, I want you to see that complaining carries significant consequences with God. Numbers 14, beginning in verse 27, says, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, Moses, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except for Caleb and Joshua. In other words, you will not get what you want. Because I'm not going to put up with this anymore. You've complained so much. I'm not going to bless you with what I wanted to bless you with. And I'm not going to give you what you wanted most of all. Now, in all honesty, I can't prove directly that God is ever going to do that in your life or in my life. But because he did it here in Numbers there is a fair chance that there is something that God really wants to bless you with or there is something that, he, that, that you want and God would love to give you that. He would love to give that to you. But it could be, it could be if we read into this scripture that there may be times when God says, you know what, no, no. Just like I would with one of my kids or with one of my grandkids. You've been sooking and belly aching and moaning too much. No, no, you're not going to that party. Or you're not staying up late to watch that movie. No, no, you, you, you've got to learn that you can't complain against the one who blesses you. Because at some point, I'm not going to bless you with the thing that you want the most. Your complaining has driven me crazy. Now, the whole issue could be a, a significant, the whole thing, the whole issue here could be at a significant cost, not only spiritually, but also a very practical standpoint. Some academics have contended and made the case that when you complain, you are actually drawing and attracting negative things to you. We've all heard the expression, birds of a feather flock together. There's a great story of a very wise uh, uh, real estate agent who was showing homes to different families. The real estate agent was showing an out-of-town family a handful of homes, but they didn't like anything that they were viewing, and in fact, they were very negative. Then they asked the real estate agent a very telling question. What are the people like in this town? The real estate agent asks them another question back. He says, what are the people like in the town you came from? And they said, the people are judgmental. They are no nosy parkers. Do you use that expression? 
nosy parkers, sticky nose. They always want to be in your, in your business. They've got a sticky nose. They're gossips. Not good people, they said. The real estate agent responded, well, you're probably going to find the people in this town, they're not good. They're not good people either. The next day, the real estate agent had another family to whom he showed different homes to. And they were a delightful family. They were positive. They saw good aspects in all the homes they were viewing. And again, they asked the real estate agent a very telling question. They were just saying, we're just curious, what are the people like in this town? And the real estate agent asked another question back and said, well, I'm curious, what are the people like in the town you came from? And they said, they're actually great people. We had so many great friends and the townspeople were really the salt of the earth and good quality people. And then the real estate agent looked back and said, well, I've got good news for you. The chances are you will discover that the people in this town are a lot like your hometown. If you want to complain, you can find things to complain about all day long. If you want to be bitter, if you want to be cynical, if you want to be negative... You don't have to look far to find things to be bitter, cynical and negative about. The technical or the academic term for this is a confirmation bias. The teaching of that goes like this. If you have a preconceived idea against something, you will search out or you will interpret new information based on your preconceived bias. If you are critical and want to find something wrong, you can very easily interpret new information in such a way as to prove your preconceived bias. Confirmation bias has been described as the internal yes man, which echoes back to a person's beliefs, just like in Charles Dickens' Dickens's character Uriah Heep in David Copperfield. If anyone's ever read that novel, you'll pick up on what that yes man is and that confirmation bias. For example, let me make some broad characterizations. If you like to sing ancient hymns, but your preconceived bias just gets in the way of letting you make any transition to modern examples of Christian music, even though Christian music examples uh, have revolutionized the generation, modern Christian music, but because you have decided not to like it, you have already found 15 things that you don't like um, about the ministry of the church, the pastor, the leaders, the building, the uncomfortable chairs, and on and on and on it goes. Because you've interpreted that new information based on your bias. And the person sitting right next to you doesn't have this bias, but has a more neutral bias and sees God's purpose and plan and God speaks to them. Why is that? Because there's no preconceived bias. Another example is a young woman is hurt by a man and she decides that all men are boneheads. They sort of are, but anyway, all men are boneheads. And every time she meets a man because of her bias, she can find relatively easy reasons to pick men apart. And this lady goes through life with the condition or the conclusion that there is no good men on planet Earth because she already has made up her mind and interprets information based on a confirmation bias. So if you want to be critical, if you want to be negative, if you want to bellyache and complain, you will be miserable. And so will the people around you. And it will cost you significantly. 
So why is that? Well, sociologists who have studied this have concluded that the more blessed, the more affluent people are, the more critical they become. And in recent generations, the argument is that people are becoming more critical and more negative and complaining more. The premise for the conclusion is this. Smaller family units are contributing to a more entitled mindset, which leads people or predeposes them to being negative and critical. A great example is dinner time. In a small family, the family conforms to the desire of the what? The children, don't they? It's common for mum and dad to ask what you would like for dinner. And more than often than not, the children get to make a choice, and in some cases, several choices. This one, this one doesn't like eggs. This one doesn't like tomatoes, tomatoes. This one, uh, you know, and anyway, you know what I'm talking about, right? Giselle and I have friends, Janelle and Paul Bruce. They have seven children, seven children in their family. They live in, um, they live in a massive house and their mealtime table is three trestle tables pushed together. Dinner time is insane. Kids come out of the woodwork and they run to the table like a swarm of locusts. So here's the deal. Mum decides and it's served. And if you don't like it, another kid says, thank God there's more for me. If you are not there at the table when it's served, then you're on your own. You're on your own. It's first come, first served. Now, Janelle and Paul aren't the best parents in the world, not by a long shot. But just because of the nature of their family, all their kids conform to the needs of the family rather than the family conforming to the needs of the children. When the family continues to conform to the needs of the children, what happens? We as children grow up thinking that we are the centre of the plot. We think that we get what we want. And any time we don't get what we want, since we are the centre of the plot, then we have the right, the God-given right, to complain about anything that is not going our way. Correct? Okay, no one said correct, Amelia. And if it's not all as it should be, we may even cast our complaints against God. God, why isn't my life the way I think it should be? So here is where the rubber meets the road this morning. At, this, at, at, at its root, complaining is a very intense spiritual problem. We think we are in charge and have the God-given right to complain. The bottom line is God is the centre of the story. He is the main character, not us. Bob Dylan said it best when he says, Do you ever wonder just what God requires? You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. Does God, does, God does not exist this morning, beloved, to serve us. God is not on the throne going, oh no, oh no. They're upset again. 
Let me try and make them happy. We exist to serve God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We exist to glorify him. God is the main character. We are not. If you are an habitual complainer, that means you think you are the main character in the story. And at its root, complaining is a profoundly deep and spiritual problem that must be dealt with. So what do we do in a culture that sees complaining as normal? And in most cases, it is expected. There are entire clusters of friendships that are built around common dislikes. We gather around people and bond with those people who all complain about the same thing. So what do we do? How how do we go about constraining the complaining? Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 to 18 gives us the what, the why and the how to constrain our complaining. First, what is the what according to scripture? The what is very direct, it's very complete and the Apostle Paul said the what as plainly as he could in Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. So what do we have to do? Do everything. If you apply this to your relationships, if you do this one thing in your marriage, you will have a successful marriage because where there is a lot of complaining and arguing, one of you or both of you in the relationship think you are the centre of that relationship in your mind. And if, if, if anything does not live up to your expectations, you will complain and you will bellyache and you will argue. But the Apostle Paul says, do everything without complaining and arguing. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, he says, Do not let your unwholesome talk, do not let any, sorry, unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So this week, when you are about to complain, try biting your tongue. It will hurt, but it will stop you talking. And then you will notice how much less you have talked. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I'm sick of my job. I'm always tired. No. Thank God that you have been blessed with a job. And you can make a difference where you are. Only let what comes out of your mouth be helpful for building others up rather than tearing down. Complaining never makes anything better. That's the what. Now let's have a look at the why. What's the why? Why should I not complain? The what is don't complain. But why should we not complain? The answer is so that we so that you, we, can become more like Christ. And that's the important answer to you. To, to you uh, to, that's, that's the important answer if you are calling yourself a Christian this morning. Philippians chapter 2, <coughs> verses 14 to 15 says, Do everything without complaining and arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and, and de depraved generation. So the Apostle Paul uh, could have said, uh, do not lie, 
Do not cheat, do not steal, do not swear, do not lust, so that you may be blameless and pure. But he doesn't. He says, do not complain. Why? Do not complain. Why? Because complaining is such a heart issue this morning. Because at its root, we are trying to either be the center of the plot, the center of the script of our own life. If you cannot remove yourself from the center of the narrative and put God in his rightful place, then you have, then, then, then if you do that, if you remove yourself from the center of the narrative and put God in his rightful place, then you will stop complaining and you can become pure, a child of God without fault in a crooked and a depraved generation. Now, what we have talked about to this stage is external. Catching your words, biting your tongue. Uh, we've talked about what it, what it, what, what's on the outside. And also, all of us can start to train our mouths. We can, we can fake that till we make it, can't we? We can train our mouths and say, well, that's what Pastor Neil told us to do and I'll just do it. And if that's the case, it's external. It's external. But, Jesus said very clearly in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, for out of the overflow of our heart speaks the mouth. If we just fix the external, we are really missing the heart of the matter this morning, which is internal. If our heart is not right, then we have lost the battle in a very significant way. So what do we do? Now, the best way to look at this is that we need to align our hearts with the heart of God. And here's the how. Here's the how. What? The what is don't complain. The why is so that you will be more like Christ. The how is you choose to rejoice no matter what. Choose to rejoice no matter what. You align your heart with him and you choose to rejoice no matter what. This is what the Apostle Paul did. And it is amazing when you think about the context. Paul was writing this letter to the Philippian church while he was under Roman house arrest. And in his mind, he is probably thinking, this is the end of the road. In my, I'm, I'm at the end of my life now. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, it says, even, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. What do you think that means this morning? What do you think Paul is saying? He is saying, even if I die for this, even if I give my life, it's for the cause of Christ. However, most people would be complaining. I don't like being in prison. I don't like prison food. I don't like everything. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't do anything wrong. Why am I here? I need to be out making a difference. I'm tired of sitting around here all day writing these stupid letters. Uh, this isn't fair. I have been falsely accused. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, even if I die, 17 to 18, verse 17 to 18, I am glad and rejoice with you, with all of you. So you should be glad and rejoice with me. How in the world can a person say that? Let me tell you how he can say that. Because Paul is a bloke who said, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives 
in me. How could he say that? Because he was no longer the center of the story. His heart was aligned to the heart of Christ and had been transformed and forgiven. If we read between the lines of these verses, we can hear the heart of this man. If you only knew where I came from, if you only knew what I have been forgiven of, if you only knew what Christ did for me, how could I do anything but rejoice? I trust him as the supreme God of the universe. He has not just, he has not just my best interest, but his glory in mind. And if my discomfort somehow brings him glory, why in the world will I complain about that? Because he is the center of the story and I am his willing and rejoicing servant. We need to choose to rejoice this morning, beloved, to rejoice. There may be all sorts of things in your life that you just want to complain about. They may be petty things, they may be big things. But when you take yourself out of the center of the story and put the only one who is worthy to be there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you align your heart with him, you will suddenly realize complaining costs a lot. Complaining costs a lot. It offends the heart of God. It costs you significantly. And it will drive other people away. But you can overcome it. You can stop complaining. And you do, um, and, and you will do, and you will become more like Christ when you stop complaining and your heart will be aligned with him rejoicing in all things because he truly this morning is that good so let's bow our heads this morning and let's pray father I pray today that by your holy spirit and by your word that you would do a work in our hearts this morning and that we would be different because we have been with you. Let us feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit to stop complaining and align our hearts with your purpose and with your glory. Let us see by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that this is a significant sin and a big spiritual issue. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness for being the main character who complains and belly aches all the time. Please help us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and confess our faith in the words.